This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Hey, how's it going, Danielle? Good. How are you? Good. Um, except uh, my Corgi and I haven't finished our post-work snuggle sesh. <laughs> so that's why what? you see her next to me on the computer screen. What's her name? Shifty. Um, Hi. <laughs> and plus, I thought, you know, who knows? I'm kind of an imposing figure. Thought maybe... Uh, it would re- reassure you that I have a sensitive side, you know? <laughs> I mean, I love dogs. I, I, I'm, a, I'm on campus because I was too worried my, my two would bark, but oh. I always love seeing people's pets on Zoom. Um, yeah, did it work? Do I seem more gentle? Yeah. Because I'm holding a 20-pound corgi. Oh. <laughs> yeah. All right. You're going to go about your business now, and we're going to podcast. As a matter of fact, um, we're podcasting already. <laughs> I uh, I normally chit chat with my guests for a few minutes before I start recording, but whew, I got a corgi hair in my mouth now. <laughs> um, but I like to be dynamic and keep people guessing, so I hit I hit record before I even let you into the to the call. That's okay. Yeah. Can you is can you hear me okay? Yeah, like, can you hear me? Clear? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Good. Uh, so, I guess it would have been about six weeks ago, this guy, this dude, I, I barely know him, but he sends me this article that you wrote. <laughs> it's called Conservation Dressed in Camouflage, Neoliberal Environmentality. In the hunting industry and like without even reading that it's an academic article and even and i'm a researcher so i kind of understand that world um i'm not a social scientist you're a social scientist i take it yeah but but i I didn't even read the abstract and i knew that i wanted to have you on and then i tried to tried to parse the article tried to understand it some uh, which is tough do you like i can't tell social scientists uh if it's a if it it's just part of the culture that that you write and say stuff with a lot of like obscure language or if it really is so complicated that you have to do it that way I mean, in my field, in ecology, there is a substantial amount of jargon, for sure. Not nearly as much as there is in the social sciences, I gather. But people liked, like to use all the discipline-specific language. I think it maybe it f- makes it seem smarter and it f- they feel like it ups their chances of publication, you know, and I, you know, so when I'm peer reviewing articles for journals, I often play this game of seeing how many 
fewer words I could make the same statement with while, while avoiding words that only a small number of people on the planet know the meaning of. So what's your thoughts? Do you, is your, is your article necessarily difficult to understand because of words that aren't in common usage? Or is it part of the culture? I mean, I think it just kind of came out that way just by virtue of the the theories I was drawing from. I think they're just, like, even reading other papers, they're just dense. So I think in order for the paper to be taken seriously academically, I did have to use a lot of, a lot of the jargon. Um, or, or, or increase the word count, right? Because there's, there's always that choice. I mean, you learned the meaning of all those concepts and words. Right. Via somebody explaining them through larger numbers of words. Yeah. Right? So you could have resorted to the more primitive language, but it probably would have just increased the word count dramatically. Yeah, and I was already at the max word count for GeoForum. So it was definitely a tough balance. And All right. Well, it's I might end up calling. I might end up, who knows, you know, I'm so happy to have you on. But uh, it's important to, it's important to be honest about yeah. what, about what, you know, what you, what you, I might end up, I guess I'm beating around the bush. I might end up calling bullshit. If like I find out after I have you explain some of this stuff that I could have said it in fewer words without the jargon, then I might just tell you that I think that. But that's fair. I was also like writing this as my, you know, for my dissertation. So I think there was that pressure and okay, that. So this is part through. of your PhD. Yes, this was okay. part of my PhD research. So I was, you know, being highly scrutinized by my committee members and stuff. And so mm -hmm. I felt that pressure to, you know, to show that I could play the game, I guess. Yeah. Yo, yo. <laughs> so is your co-author your PhD advisor? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And now you have a teaching position. Yeah. So I graduated um, in December with my PhD in environmental science um, from the, it's a mouthful, the college is named the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Oh, wow. Yeah, which we call ESF for short. Okay. Um, and so this semester I've been teaching just in like a visiting like adjunct capacity in the Department of Environmental Studies. Okay. Are you enjoying that? Yeah. I mean, we're right in the final, uh, final stretch of the semester. This is the last full week of classes. So it's been kind of hectic um, with just, you know, all the final projects that students are doing and stuff, but it's gone pretty well. I think one class yeah. you're teaching one two. class, two classes, two classes. Level. Um, an undergraduate class and then um, a graduate class. And so the undergraduate class is called Social Processes and the Environment, and the graduate class is in Qualitative Methods. 
Oh, wow. Shit, you can't be much older than some of your students in the graduate level class. No, I think I'm maybe a year older than <laughs> some of the oldest students. Mm -hmm. So we, we talked about that and joked. I mean, it was it worked out fine. I was yeah. just very open about it. And I think it helped build a good rapport. Yeah, yeah. I was able to understand their experience in a different way. Cause, and I think they appreciated you know, that I am so close to the graduate student experience that I kind of understand a lot of what they're going through in ways that other professors might not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, your article, you quote and draw a lot of ideas from, and even methods from, if I'm understanding correctly, like your methodological approaches in some ways based on the the French philosopher Michel Michel Foucault, and it's almost like you write the paper in a way that makes it seem like he's indispensable. Like you couldn't have written it had he not, but had he not been born. It kind, um, of, it kind of feels that way. I don't think it started out. That wasn't my intention. You know, when I started out and. Then through the peer review process, I was pushed to include more and more. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was I found that surprising. I mean, I, I know a bit about Foucault. He's he was uh, like he's a post structuralist kind of a fellow. The book he I'm aware of four books that he wrote, and they all kind of revolve around this th same theme that we have a skewed perspective about the past and we could derive more reliable insights. I, I'm, che I'm checking my knowledge against with you right now. So you tell me where I go wrong, that we could derive more reliable insights from the past if we had a clearer understanding of it. And he makes that point with the legal system in one book, right? And and human medicine in one madness in one book and then sexual human sexuality in one book i know he had some pretty radical ideas about sexuality he he was opposed to he was a he was a he was opposed to like age of consent laws i remember reading somewhere did you know that I don't I don't know that one in particular. I know his book Discipline and Punish and then I know the history of sexuality. Um and I I what I took from a lot of his work was um just how how like through words and discourse and images and symbols like there's, you know, power, that's, that's how power relations are maintained in certain ways throughout society. So it keeps control in certain hands as opposed to others. Uh-huh. All right. So the goal, the goal of the article was to look at the role of technology in hunting in some way. Right. And to see, yeah, just like what, what these technologies like represented to companies um, how they how they promoted these technologies to consumers like in what ways these 
could these technologies be used or how should they be used or why, why buy these technologies? And I was really trying to get a, like with where Foucault comes in is, um, in his approach to discourse analysis, which is the method that I use, um, he's really trying to determine what makes someone in this case, um, like a conservationist, like how, how are conservationists constructed through the languages that companies promote through certain conservation laws through Wait, is this something he grappled with? No, this is, okay. this is how I applied his ideas. Okay. Um, so I was applying his idea of, of discourse and power and truth and knowledge and um, trying to think about how that tied into creating this like wildlife conservationist person. Mm -hmm. I guess before getting in, so eventually we'll get into what you found, right? Right. The findings were, but you know, I just, I just went in going through the, the, the paper, the paper, I pulled out some quotes that I thought were interesting. And maybe we talk about a few things you said in the introduction first, before yeah. getting more clear about, more clear about what the technologies precisely are that you're talking about. And um the the i guess what the objectives the of industry in promoting those technologies and the i mean the objective is to make money i mean but like their means of situating technologies in a way that makes them maximally maximally palatable to consumers is that I mean, so going into the paper, I, I, I didn't really know how, what company, like what the role of these technologies were for companies. That was. Well, that isn't was, it to make money? Selling I mean, that's what I, that's money. what I found, but I didn't, you know, I didn't really, I know it might sound weird, but I didn't really know that going into it. I did try to, to not put any assumptions on what I was going to find. Right. That's, that's the tricky part with some of the qualitative research. But aren't um, the technologies in question like products that the companies sell? Yeah. So it's products that companies sell. And another, you know, way that I rated Foucault into this was that he doesn't just look at like these physical technologies. He talks about some more of like discursive technologies. So discourse is not just like the language we use it's also um like the images and the symbols and some of the absences you know the unspoken things that might you know get missed so it's the interplay of of all of these different factors coming together to create a certain narrative about in this case, what it means to be a wildlife conservationist. And so that's like more of a technology of governance, like a technology of, of governing wildlife conservationists. Um, and so 
would I ultimately like the companies? The companies are governing people's so behavior. Is that what you mean? In a way, yes. Um, I don't. It's it, it's again. It's like kind of flowing under the surface, and that's how Foucault talks about how power functions in society at least today, it's not always explicit, but it kind of flows in these hidden ways. And, and that's what I think is happening with some of these companies is they're really governing wildlife conservation um, in a sense. And that's like, it's a technology of governance. So it's more of this dis discursive approach that's not necessarily very visible or like obvious and so you have to that's what the analysis was that I did um was trying to see how how some of these hidden pathways play out and and what the role of these like physical material technologies was in kind of driving that the technologies are things like you, you I take define pretty them broadly approach. you define them pretty broadly like camel Yep. Game cameras. Yep. Maybe even stuff like deer pee, you know, attractants, anything right. like that. Is that true? Yeah. And like guns are a big one. Um, basically, any hunting product um, that these companies sell, I, I would consider like a, a technology. My gloss on all of that is... These are companies that sell products to make money. And they, in their advertising materials, and maybe they even do a little donating, a little philanthropy in this respect, they give a lot of lip service to conservation. I'm not convinced that that's a major priority to them. Their, their, their bottom line is... in is by far and away the dominant consideration yes that is i think the ultimate so uh, what am i missing i'm making in the paper okay so that's where you come down in yeah after working through you know my analysis and everything that was that was the main conclusion i think that i really came to is that there's they're promoting this very conservation oriented narrative but at the end of the day it's it's about making money okay so why do they feel the need to talk about conservation a lot i think there are, are a number a number of reasons i think it has to do a lot with it's you know a pretty neutral idea it's not going to you know it's not going to drive away customers necessarily. Like people want to participate in conservation. I think most people have, you know, a desire to protect the environment or to protect wildlife. But once you start to get specific, then it does become divisive right. because right. you could say by conservation, I mean, instituting more national monuments right and then there'd be a lot of hunters on the right that would oppose that vehemently 
so yeah, I guess as long as it's ill-defined, like as long as the notion of, of conservation is not, if, if as long as it's not fleshed out, it probably isn't controversial. But right. why even bother with it at all? Well, I think it's because of how, how, um, I mean, what really like a lot of these technologies come down to is that like the taxes go towards the Pittman-Robertson Act. So they're just trying to, they're trying to like, that makes sense to me that these companies are like, some of this money is going to go to the Pittman-Robertson fund. So we got, we can use that as an advertising Exactly. It's a very good advertising and marketing strategy that looks like it's funding conservation. And to some extent it is, but it's also, you know, increasing their profits. Yeah. It Uh, also gives them a lot of like lobbying power. I mean, these companies obviously don't lobby directly with the government, but they are connected with in kind of these very hidden ways connected with organizations who lobby for specific wildlife conservation laws. You know, these, these folks, the, the hunting industry, they, they do hold some power in directing how PR dollars are spent. So a few years ago, so traditionally those funds were for, were used for, for habitat and access, period. But a few years ago, the law was amended so that they could be, those funds could be used for R3, for recruitment, retention, reactivation. Right. And that, and that change in the law was, I mean, the, the dominant, the, the dominant political effort or the, the dominant, dominant lobbying that went on to get that change was, was done by the hunting industry. And that makes perfect sense because more hunters means more customers you know and it's not just hunters though now too it's it's also shooting like non-hunting shooters you're right right so it's almost i mean that effort makes complete sense in in the way i view the hunting industry like whoa this these pr dollars that they should be used to instead of for conservation and access they should be used to make more customers for us, which gives right. you a, a sense of how the, the, of the fact that they really, at the end of the day, they don't give a shit about, about conservation and access. They, they care about profits. Another great way in which, the, the, another thing that makes demonstrates the hunting industry doesn't care about, about access is you look at all the land that they buy up for themselves to hunt on, like Realtree is one company 
mm-hmm. buys up shitloads of land for you know the guy that owns it and his cronies or like Cabela's hunting properties. Do you know about that? Oh yeah, because the, their name, the name that they initially had for that was Cabela's Trophy Properties. Oh, is that what it is? Mm-hmm. That was my first. That was the first bit of advocacy I ever engaged in was this was freaking 20 years ago I found out that they were starting to buy up property and kind of like subdivide it into smaller parcels like big chunks and then they divide it up into smaller parcels and then sell it to people uh and I'm like wait a minute you're taking the money that I gave you for products so that I that I could then use on public lands to hunt or lands that were accessible to hunting, private lands. You're taking the pro- the money I gave you and then and then buying up land and making it so that I can no longer hunt there. Yeah, it's it's kind this, of this is such a fucking brutal thing to do to your clients, to your customers. It's kind of terrifying. Yeah, so I imagine that these conservation efforts that the hunting industry and the outdoor industry more generally engage in is at least part so that they can cement this... uh, view of their company and of their representatives right as being a certain sort of person oh for sure yeah Yeah, i think they're really i mean these companies i think are all concerned with their image as environmental stewards yeah, so that was one of the quotes that stood out in, in, in your article to me. You quote uh, Jim Posowitz. Yep. His book, uh, 1994 book, My Best Shot. Somebody gave me that book, but I, I just haven't. I'm a slow reader, man. I need to, I need to but I need to read that book. I just haven't. He writes in there, uh, quote, and this, this is quoting you, quoting him. There would be no hunting if there were no wild animals. The fact that there would be few wild animals if there were no hunters is not as obvious. Both of these statements are true, and they are things everyone should know about the American hunter slash conservationists conservationist. That's a widely held sentiment in the hunting industry and with hunting nonprofits that if it wasn't for hunters, wildlife would be beleaguered far more than it is do you think that's true you write a bit about that in your article i think you're kind of taking it to task 
it's like I, in section 2.2 of your article it seems like you're citing some literature that skeptical of the notion that hunters are the reason why we have so many elk and deer yeah i think that quote i mean the first time i read it i was i was so shocked but then the more i talked to hunters i realized how like you were saying it is this very widely held belief oh it's Um, received wisdom yeah oh you there's freaking no i mean that is that is central to hunter's view of themselves i i i'm not i couldn't i i i don't know what to think i don't know what to think these days currently i think that hunting is is on balance bad for wildlife because i think that whatever is being done in terms of with with sportsmen's dollars for conservation the benefits therein are more than offset by the negative effects of crowding so you, you get what I mean? Like, yeah, you, the dollars that come in to fund research, wildlife research, or habitat projects, those, the benefits of all that are more than offset on the negative side by the number of hunters that are crowding public lands and rendering them inhospitable to gain. Yeah, I think when I... When I, the way I was think, I've thought about this quote is thinking about even more broadly than just even public lands and the wildlife that hunters um, hunt. Because I think the part of the, it's just so surprising to me that there's this, this idea that hunters are the only ones who care about wildlife. You know, I'm at ESF, it's an environmental college, and you know, I would say the vast, vast majority, like 99 point, I'm sure it's like 100% of people here would say they care about wildlife, but it's not like everyone's a hunter. What percent of them are hunters? Oh, you know, probably very typical of, of the general population. I think maybe a little bit more. Um, we have like a ranger school program up in the Adirondacks. And so I think there are maybe, it depends on the department and stuff, um, but it's a fairly small number of students here who, who, and faculty who, I would say even smaller with faculty who hunt, although I do know some people here that hunt. But it's the way that like he phrases it when he says the fact, like this is where that Foucault, like Foucault comes in with discourse of he's making this, you know, what Foucault would call a truth claim and saying that the fact that there would be few wild animals if there were no hunters is not as obvious. Um, That's a really big overgeneralization, I would say. Um, 
because I think that there are a lot of people who care about wildlife and wildlife, you know, needs to be protected, not just on public lands, but also in urban areas. Like, it's not like wildlife is only, you know, like wildlife conservation, I think often gets like focused on public lands and and that makes sense. But there are many other ways that I think people care about wildlife and do even small actions to conserve wildlife that, and I'm not saying that hunters aren't important for wildlife conservation, because I, I do think that hunters play an important role, but I think that their role gets really overemphasized. And that's what some of the other literature I, I brought in was saying, because of wildlife, you know, we have uh, the North American model of wildlife conservation. And as part of that, wildlife are held in, under public trust doctrine, which, which means they can't be privately owned um, and they're for the benefit of everyone. Yeah. So but what the, yeah, what the literature argues is that if you're only, if you're only focusing on, you know, hunters and, and these laws are set up in ways that only hunters are, you know, funding conservation, that's, that's kind of fundamentally undemocratic and at odds with this idea of public trust doctrine. And it also places an undue burden on hunters in a lot of ways. Um, because I think a lot of people want to contribute to wildlife conservation, but the way that the system is set up um, doesn't really allow for that. Yeah. I mean, so much of it is, I mean, a lot, there's a, there's a high, a large percentage of hunters that the only thing they do for conservation is buy their tag. Mm -hmm. That's probably over half, well over half of hunters. That's, that's their sole contribution. And that's not, that's not like going out of your way. That's just making sure you don't get in trouble with the law you know yeah now i i do think that if you were to if 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 you were to rank order all the people in the us in terms of concern for wildlife and habitat a lot of people at the tippy top would be hunters i think that's true too but where i start to get annoyed is when people argue from the premise that hunters play an important role in funding conservation to the conclusion that we need to recruit more hunters. And the reason I get annoyed is because I don't think that's why most people, I don't think that's why the vast majority of people are really arguing that. I don't think they're arguing. They're, 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 they're in their beds at night worried, like as they go to sleep, Oh, if we don't have more hunters, how are we, are we going to fund conservation? I think it's more the motive. The real motivation is they want more hunters so they can sell more products. 
Yeah. Not because they're terribly concerned about about funding in in it. One piece and of evidence are, I would refer one piece of evidence I would I would refer to to strengthen my point there is that funding has never been better. I mean PR dollars are through the freaking roof. And a lot of that I think is is due to non hunting gun sales. Mm -hmm. It absolutely, absolutely is. Um, all right, I got some notes here. What else can I ask you about? Unless you wanted to, unless there's more you wanted to say about all that stuff. I think it'll keep coming up throughout. Okay. So <laughs> I thought this was interesting. Research has shown that while the consumption of hunting media, such as with cable TV shows like Duck Dynasty and on Cabela's television channels. Do they have multiple channel channels? I think so, yeah. I didn't even know they had one channel. Shapes perceptions among hunters around these sports and wildlife con conservation. It primarily serves as a marketing tool for the hunting industry to increase consumption. So you cite some articles in there. And I try, yeah, I actually, as a consequence of reading this article, I, I reached out to the scientists that, that wrote, wrote those articles you cite. So I'm not really familiar with those papers, but apparently he, he's, he's the author is, is making the case that the sole goal with, the television shows other than getting viewers is just to sell products. I think that's part of it. And, and these were the papers that I kind of first found when I started looking into literature on the hunting industry. And so these were really important for me and kind of forming, forming, you know, how I was, how I was understanding this issue and approaching it, because I think what, what the main point is that, and this overemphasis on consumption, it's actually very contradictory to, you know, conser conservation. Like, consumption is not, is, is, is never going to be good for conservation in a broader sense. Um, like consuming gasoline to get to your hunting spot and. Right. And just latest like this, like. Latest and greatest every year and all that. Yeah. Yes, this overconsumption that takes an environmental toll. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. So it's like overconsumption of hunting products um, that you might not actually need. You know, hunting. I feel like at, at the core of hunting, it really is about like simplicity and learning to live off the land and being self-sufficient, which is really at odds with this overconsumption that we see going on. Yeah. Um, that's and a so, really interesting point. There is contradiction there. We're all for conservation, but by the latest and greatest every year from us. 
Right. And that's where the Pittman-Robertson Act and, and the North American model of wildlife conservation come in, because it's about funding conservation. And so you can't fund conservation if you're not buying products. And the more products you buy, the more funding, you know, conservation will supposedly get. They should just um, say, well, if they really cared about conservation, they'd just, they'd just be like, don't buy the latest and greatest. Instead, don't buy our latest and greatest products. Instead, make a donation. There are a lot of things they could do differently. Instead of some trivial percentage of what you spend going to conservation, whatever it is, 5% or I can't remember, the whole thing. It varies a little from product to product. The entire amount would. And the other part of what, what they're arguing is that, you know, these, these television shows are, they claim, you know, that these shows are intended to educate viewers about conservation and about hunting safety and some of the ethics around hunting. Um, but what they found is that really these are more about marketing their products. Um, oh, and- yeah. It's like, I could, I could see that. I don't, wouldn't have to do a research paper to see that. A lot of these shows will have like a ticker tape in the bottom or even on the side of the upper right-hand corner where it's it's telling you every product that the host is using. Right. Like the arrows, the bow, what kind of camo, every freaking product it's giving you the specs on. Um, <laughs> and then a lot of these shows are just such goofy bastards. It's like, they're just, they don't seem at all concerned with anything other than shooting a big one and telling you all about it. Like it's laughable. It's just freaking laughable. Well, that was the other part of, of, their, of the argument they made, is that it's, on the one hand, product marketing, and on the other hand, the killing on camera for, like, the spectacle of, of getting more viewers and more attention. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I freaking... God, I just hate... I hate hunting TV. You know, I, I've hunted my whole life. And once in a while, I'll go to when I'm in a motel room because I don't have TV at my house. I'll watch the Sportsman's Channel. And it's weird. I say I hate it, but I kind of love it at the same time. Like, I like <laughs> to sit there and watch those people shoot the great big and too, just like anybody else. It kind of simulates actually hunting. Three percent of the excitement of actually being on a hunt, but but the other ninety seven percent is just is re- I'm just repulsed by how how much it demeans how much that shit demeans something that I've devoted my life to. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's I, something it's, that I think of as quite 
quite I'm not a spiritual person, but kind of spiritual or it's sacred. like personal. Yeah. And just makes a fucking spectacle out of it. Yeah. I just I yeah, I yeah, I just hate it to the core of my being. Um but kinda like it at the same time. Um I'm, but but I yeah, do think it's I totally the get worst that. I think it's one of the worst things. I think it's one of the worst things for hunters is hunting. Like, I think that hunting for your average everyday hunter would be so much better in terms of access and quality of hunting. If hunting TV had never come about, uh, I think that hunter satisfaction in this country would be way higher than it is. And that's another part of again this like this like Foucault Foucault talking about discourse and how these shows then function to create a very specific type of hunter who's always looking for trophy animals and who's hunting using these products so that they can try to get the trophy deer or you know whatever large animal they want to they want to hunt and and it just, and then they, they, but they, they situate or they frame it as if it's, you know, educating people about conservation when really there's very little conservation in it aside from, you know, funding. Yeah. Yeah. In terms that a sixth grader could understand, if possible, what's, what's a neoliberal conservation which is a concept you write about at some length yeah so neoliberal conservation is essentially this idea that you don't have to compromise economic growth to protect the environment or to protect wildlife so it it's your cake and eat it too yes it's a win-win or you know sometimes people talk about it as a triple win where you can, you know, protect the environment so you can have wildlife conservation. You can, you know, still continue economic growth, which not only benefits the hunting industry, but then funds conservation. And you can also have this like social element of protecting these hunting traditions and like hunting culture. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the idea. Yeah. And it's also really, they really emphasize things like, like efficiency. So, kind of exercising this very, you know, seemingly efficient approach to conservation, but it's all tied around. What do you, like, you I'm not sure what you mean by that. Um, so, so like the you idea efficiency, like a lot in what way is it efficient? Um, I think that you can, you don't have to make sacrifices in a sense, like you don't have to sacrifice economic gain um, to protect wildlife. That would be one way of thinking about it. A a specific example I found um, in an article on Bass Pro Shops website was um, this quote where someone was saying, you know, with these, with these new angling technologies, you know, bass fishers don't have to fish where there aren't any fish anymore. Like these can be your underwater eyes and you can fish more efficiently because you're not wasting your time in a place where there aren't any fish. 
Mm-hmm. Well, how do they how do they say that that's like how do they link that to co- a conservation effort? It's kind of like mo- like monitoring where species where like different species are and like the hat like kind of this form of like wildlife surveillance in a sense um, of do they of- say that and plus you can tell you can make sure that the bass are doing okay. Yeah, and it, it's kind of similar. They do? I mean, it's 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 not like explicit again. All of this is very like implicit and drawing these connections out is this is like this is what the qualitative aspect of it was was really trying to I I you know went through I downloaded and screenshotted a, a an enormous an enormous amount of data from these companies websites um and i did and i did it twice and then i went through and coded everything so i was looking to see you know what companies were saying and then as i went through and coded um certain themes started emerging just based on like how often i use certain codes okay and that's where that's where you can start to see some of these connections because because they don't necessarily say that outright but through looking at all of these other connections they make it builds it builds up this like implied or underlying meaning um that that reinforces this like neoliberal conservation approach okay yeah yeah, it makes sense to me that they would portray. It maybe makes a little bit more sense with like trail cameras, or it's easier to understand yeah. trail cameras. Like that, those are for like understanding like the population, the like the deer population or the turkey population on your property, and that you can you can monitor the you know the population dynamics you can, you know, pay attention to how the habitat is changing because you're constantly observing it through this trail camera. Mm-hmm. And so that's, and you don't, it's not like you have to go out there and walk around because now there, you can just have the trail camera, like send photos directly to your cell phone. And so that's this kind of efficiency aspect of it. Okay. And they and they so they try to argue that a, a good any good conservationist would have a would have game cams out. I th- I mean I've seen a number of articles that, on their websites that talk about the importance. I mean I don't know if it's necessarily even the importance is so much as like the utility, like the usefulness of things like trail cameras for conservation on your property yeah yeah huh uh i have a i've I've never really i've never i've never used trail cams i've thought about it but it turns i don't like i don't like this idea that you're trying to find the one you want gotta find that one i'm after and go get him and that's, that's what, it, what happens though that's, that's, that's the whole idea with trail cams 
is yeah. to identify to identify your target. I mean, that's part of the, part of the reason I'm not a good a good at getting the big end is because I, I'm just not willing to go to those lengths. Like, I'd rather have the big end come through, and I didn't even know he was that he existed until the minute I shot him. That'd be way better for me, you know, as opposed to I don't know, freaking using cameras to do surveillance on them so, to up my chances of getting them. It just feels a little tacky. Feels like yeah, and that, and that's how I think that you know that's another place where the trophy animals come in because this is you know this is what happens and people become. Whether, you know, I don't know that people necessarily even do it intentionally, but it is, they become like fixated on certain animals. And so it's, it's not just about filling your tag to, you know, contribute to conservation in that sense. It's about killing a specific animal. Um, a, a specific animal or a great big one. Yeah. Well, usually uh, the specific one, one animal specific is a great, great big one. Or any great big one. Yeah, and, and I and, and I'm not opposed to I'm not opposed to trying to get a big one, you know. I'm just opposed to what a lot of people do when once they do. Like I'm opposed to getting a toad, you know, shooting a big old toad and then having to show a bunch of show it to a bunch of strangers. That's where, that's that's when where it goes wrong to me. Like the best hunters I know are are dudes that do shoot some pretty nice critters and they don't say shit to anybody except a few of their friends. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of I was just talking with um one of my students yesterday who who's studying um urban fishing and I, I <laughs> Really? Yeah. Talk about that. That sounds pretty interesting. What she, what well, she we were talking about, out? we were talking doing a about, study on urban fishing. Just about, I mean, looking at some of the, I mean, really looking at how a lot of urban fishing is, at least where I am in Syracuse, um, is done by people who can't access other places to fish. Oh man, this person should call me up. I'm an expert on urban fishing. I've done, I've done a pile of urban fishing in my in my life. Shit, I used to. I've done a. I've done a lot of fishing in Seattle for perch and for squid. For squid, I didn't really. Uh, I, yeah, I guess. Oh, you I, go down to the to the docks in Seattle in the winter and shine a lantern in the in the into the water and it attracts the, the squid and then you put this light this glowing this glow in the dark jig down there with a bunch of needles on it and they attack it and they get impaled on it also where i grew up in michigan i did a lot of a lot of urban fishing um but anyway yeah tell me what what the is there a this this person the student have a hypothesis that they're trying to test Oh well, we're trying to through my class, like through my class, they're putting together their proposal. So still kind of in that phase. Um, but what we got talking—I was in your shoes where I, I was, if, where I was 
direct helping students that were trying to do some kind of research project i would i think i'd have a demand that they either stipulate that with a in in great detail what their objectives are or what their hypotheses are right yeah and the, and they're doing that but they just haven't like handed in the final paper yet okay. um so i i haven't like looked at it so i can't say it offhand um but what we got talking about was was the social media and the the posting of like trophy animals and just how how much both of us um, feel an intense aversion to it. Like it's like you pull up your phone and you get on Instagram, and all of a sudden there's this like dead trophy animal, and just yeah. Well, who are you? Where are you seeing this? I mean, you have to kind of look for it, right? You have to follow somebody that's a hunter or. I mean, I have family who hunt, and okay, then I so also. That's where you see it. I also follow a lot of hunting industry um, things on social media, just okay, because I'm doing of, this research. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah, yeah. I find it very informative in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and if somebody like in what I'm doing, having a this with this podcast, it's kind of you know something of a exploration of the hunting industry i mean that's one thing i'm doing plus i'm i'm trying to advocate that hunters should do certain things and abstain from doing certain things in their own interest mm -hmm. not watching hunting tv not following douchebags that post dead animals to strangers um etc etc there's several action items but i too have i too have to hold my nose and look at it so i know what i'm talking about but i want to hear i want to hear what what is this this sense of disgust when you look at that stuff where is it stemming from like, uh heartbreak i think it i think it 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 kind of breaks my heart in a lot of ways just to see a, a dead a dead animal kind of casually like displayed like that um like it cheapens it yeah like it gather, you're not opposed to hunting you even are a little hunting curious i gather yeah i mean i i've hunted um okay when i when i was 12 i wanted to hunt that was when when i was younger that was the age at which you could first hunt in pennsylvania where i'm from um, and so I did my hunter safety course and went hunting that fall with my dad and uncles and some cousins. Um, and I, I think that so much of this research or my interest in this research comes from that experience because I, I did kill a deer. Oh, you and, did? Yes, a, a button buck. No. Oh. And That's it was... the first thing I ever killed was a button buck. Yeah. First deer I ever killed. Shifty. Yeah, it was, a, Shifty's, it was a now. Shifty's oh. just being annoying. She's laying on the floor next to me, growling, wanting me to pet her belly. Sorry, it's listening better. audience. It's just part and parcel of having a podcast host with a corgi. 
But anyway. <laughs> um. Yeah. So. So I I killed I killed a deer and. I think I was traumatized by it. I mean, it was just. Did you get a bad hit on him? No, it was a. It was a. I mean, it was a really good hit, and. But he still, just, it was a little. A little. He, he just overwhelming for you. Yeah, he he died there, and I don't think I really, at that age, was f- able to fully comprehend what it meant to kill an animal. Um, and then, of course, I was, you know, upset and started crying, and I got kind of teased for that. And oh, so, really? Your old yeah. man teased you about that? Yeah. Or your siblings? Um, it, it was my uncles. <laughs> and oh, man, that's bullshit. Like, they were yeah, joking. I'm sure your uncles are good dudes. Well, I shouldn't say that. They might be a-holes. But, you know... That's just a normal reaction for anybody to be a little bit Especially sad. a 12-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's and it's your first thing that you the first And they thing. were joking with me that, you know, they were going to make me take a bite out of the heart. Yeah, that's and, kind of a that's kind of a motif. Um that was a big But as a 12-year-old kid, I w- I was pretty mortified and I I can so viscerally remember like the that moment and that like it haunts me a little I think I felt so I just didn't have the capacity at that age to grapple with what it meant to take the life of another living being. Yeah. So So I think this research is a lot of me trying to process you know, some of those early experiences that I had with hunting that that drove me away from hunting um, and trying to figure out, like, what hunting... Because I still have an interest in hunting. I'm... I think I'll always eat meat. And my husband has gotten into hunting. Um, he didn't grow up... He grew up in a suburban area and didn't have any family who really hunted... And so it's been more in his adult life that, that he's gotten into hunting. Um, he's what they call an adult onset hunter. Oh, that's good to know. I'll, I'll oh, tell you never heard that? No. Oh, there's so many freaking people that are online showing everybody the first deer they shot. And like Tom, as an adult onset hunter, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm so blessed, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, it, you're an adult onset hunting braggadocious influencer is what you are. You know, that shit drives me crazy. That, that I hate that phrase. I hate that phrase. I'd never heard it before. It seems like, it seems like if you're just getting into it as an adult, you might want to just for a while, at least just do it and not tell everybody in the, on the whole planet about it. Well, my husband doesn't have social media, so and he doesn't even like to take photos with. He's killed a couple deer now, and he he doesn't even take pictures. I mean, he he does. He gets he's gotten kind of like pressured into taking it, but he doesn't want to take any pictures at all. Does he put it online? No, he doesn't have social media. He doesn't even send him out here. I'll take him hunting. I'll take that son of a bitch hunting. 
Sounds like a good dude. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably, I mean, he's been off social media now for five or six years, and he, yeah, he, I've never even seen the photos. Oh, I like the sound of this guy. Tell him he's doing it right. God bless him. I will. I'm going to keep an eye on him. Keep an eye out for him. If he starts putting shit online, I'm going to, I'm going to troll his ass. <laughs> um, so anyway, this, this disgust you feel, it sounds very similar to the disgust I feel. Like, I think there's any kind of, there's a lot of ways you could slice up the pie but if you wanted to slice it up, like hunters that just do it under the radar for their own love of it, outward facing hunters that do it to get affirmation from large groups of people and make money off of it and virtue single signal about conservation and all that crap and then non-hunters and then anti-hunters so there's like four slices to the pie mm -hmm. i would way rather that the piece of the pie that was anti-hunters grew than the piece of the pie that was showboat hunters grew i'm like way more sympathetic to the to i'm cl way closer to being an anti-hunter we're talking about somebody that hunts and fishes probably 60 days a year now mm -hmm. a lot every that's all that i do when i in my spare time i'm a research scientist so i don't have a tremendous i mean i, I don't have limitless when I'm retired, it'll be 365 days a year. I mean, that's all I really preoccupies my mental my, my mental life is hunting. Mm -hmm. um, but still, I would rather I I would I I I am more aligned with anti hunters than I am showboats. So, I guess the point there is I. I'm a, I, I agree that with, I think that's right to feel what you feel when you watch these jackasses online. Yeah, it's very. And I don't even dislike them. I sit and call them names and stuff. But then I know a lot of people that do that stuff, that do, that are real outward facing with their hunting life in terms of whether they on social media or I know people that are hunting TV personalities and I like a lot of these people. So I shouldn't be calling names. You know, that's a little bit childish. It's just, I have a different perspective. I just think it makes a spectacle out of something that's very important to me. It makes me mad. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, in thinking of my own experience with hunting, it was such like an emotional process to me. And I think I've heard you talk about this a little, maybe on some of the other podcast interview where I've listened to where you've been interviewed of that. It, it takes a, what it doesn't, 
it doesn't create space to recognize like the sad parts of hunting and the parts that are really like, I mean, I just feel such an intense amount of grief that when I see those pictures, it, that's what comes up for me. It's just yeah. like, how, how, how do you, it almost seems to me, and I don't even, I think the way that it gets presented on social media feels so emotionless and like heartless in some ways. And I'm not sure that's necessarily how these people feel, but that's just the there's way. Some, there's a, there, in that, in that genre, the grip and grin genre, you will find some pictures where, where the hunter is looking down at the animal with some amount of like sorrow or profound emotion, you know, there, there, there is that, but how much of that is just staged? If it's this overwhelming experience, why did you have to take a bunch of pictures of it and put it online? You don't, when you go to a, a funeral, an open casket funeral, you don't take pictures of yourself looking at the body in the casket and put those online. Yeah, it feels, like it feels... It's, not, it's being done. It's being done part. It's being done at least partly for the, your audience, not because you legitimately have those feelings. Yeah. I think to me, a lot of the trophy, the images of trophy animals especially the the dead trophy animals it it just feels it just feels like disrespectful to that animal i'd say the same for even not tro- for not trophy animals too right right yeah yeah i should say i guess you just see so few images of non trophy animals on social media yeah it depends on what it varies some with what segment of the hunting community you're talking about. That's true. There's a lot of hunt. There's a lot of people that are on the left that hunt. They tend to be people like local locavore sorts of folks, you know, are more on the left. Uh, and with them, you know, you'll see in those circles those sorts of people tend to be members of hunting nonprofit organizations more, I would argue. And it's less about the trophy and more about the meat acquisition, but it's, it's just a different form of bragging. So, on the trophy hunting side, they're bragging about how big the rack is or whatever, even though they probably shot it on some private land that you or I and 99% of other hunters will never have no, we don't even, we can't hunt there if we want. So who cares about some freaking thing you shot on the place that I'm not even allowed to go. So that's stupid. Um, but on the more on the left, on the left, with hunters that are a little more on the left, they just brag about how self-reliant they are and how delicious their their 
deer shank osobuco is you know so that's something to look out for too is that there's all kinds of bragging about hunting that doesn't involve the trophy aspect it's more like what a great lifestyle i have look how close to the earth i am oh yeah <laughs> rugged look a rugged naturalist kind of this rugged outdoors person signaling kind of thing yes i i could i could definitely see that because that's something i think is it's fairly common within like the outdoor industry and some of the recreation. I mean, it's not, it's different cause you're not hunting, but it is this idea of like being closer to the land or being able to like do, you know, these extreme feats in the wilderness that like other people can't do. Oh, it's a huge part of it. Huge part of being a hunting hero is yeah, athleticism and hunting are deeply intertwined now. These people, it's even gotten to the point there are so many of them now, these hunter-athlete sorts of folks, that, that, there's, that they have to kind of compete with one another for eyeballs. Oh, yeah. You know, I could, I my, could see that. that's one of my big pet peeves is there's a lot of, a lot of these people, these aspiring hunting celebrity sorts of folks, they, they kill way more than they could ever eat because they have to be more of a badass than the next guy. There's one thing, more thing I wanted to ask you about, is there, and that could be our what we talk about in closing, unless you had some other things you wanted to talk about. The part about camouflage. Oh yeah, uh, we never talked about that. Yeah, so let me let me challenge you on that. So where, where, where's that quote? Yeah. Um. So the quote from my paper is: it says camouflage symbolizes the intersection of consumption and conservation both of wildlife and the hunter and angler identity and represents what this lifestyle is all about. Yeah. And so I just have a different take on that. When I see somebody wearing camo in public, I just think it's kind of tacky. I, I don't, I never go, I won't even go into a gas station wearing camo. I, I just, it, when I see somebody wearing camo in public, what I'm inclined to think is maybe that there's just somebody that has a different perspective than me and doesn't care what other people think, or they think camo's cool, or they're they maybe they have anti-federalist kind of inclinations. But I don't think I never think, oh, there's somebody that's trying to show what a great conservationist they are. Yeah, I think I really, I was thinking about this more and, and I think where I'm coming from, because again, this, this paper was about trying to show the messaging that these companies are, dis, are, are giving to their consumers. So I think the idea that camouflage is symbolic of conservation 
that's the story that they're trying to sell you. It might not necessarily be what it represents for like individual hunters. I got you. And so they're selling you this idea that if you wear camouflage, then you look the part of being a conservationist. Okay. Whether or not, you know, because like, it's funny. Yeah. I, I would say, I would have to guess that if, if, if you took, a hundred people that you found in public wearing camo and a hundred people that at random that you found in public, not wearing camo, the camel wearing folks, I would, I would guess would be on average more likely for more like be would be, would look upon drilling in Anwar more favorably than the people that weren't wearing camo. It would be an interesting study. Oh, really? You think there's any chance? See, to me, it's, I'd have a hard time, I have a hard time imagining that, that the camel folks would be less drill baby drill than the non-camel wearing folks. Yeah, that, that would probably be my assumption too. So the, so the industry might try to make some point about selling or buy our camo, support conservation, but your typical person that wears camo in public, I don't think that's what they're thinking. No. Anything else? Or do you, yeah, go go ahead. Yeah, I think the, the, the camouflage part two it also ties into this like the again the contradictions between consumption and conservation and how they kind of this messaging gets kind of hidden um that's like what the title of the paper is is really trying to get at is how how conservation how how the contradictions between conservation and consumption are being hidden and camouflaged and that buying camouflage products is like is like kind of symbolic of that in a way um because if you buy camouflage and fit in then you'll be dressed the part of like what it what it what it means to be a conservationist or to live the conservationist well, life wait a minute didn't we just say didn't we just establish that we both agree that that wearing camel sends the message that you're more you favor drilling more or that you favor land trans well not that that's not a conservation issue that you're less that you're less concerned about conservation well that's i think that's what's so interesting about this is that you know this is the messaging that these companies are giving but then it's not by how it's perceived by the public right and it's so they're 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 putting out this messaging but then when you look kind of under the surface a little bit more it doesn't necessarily play out in the way that they are suggesting it it should yeah, yeah. so you tr- you you looked at how many companies i looked at four i looked at cabela's bass pro shops mossy oak and real tree okay 
and that was something that was consistent across all four of the companies. I think the camouflage part was strongest with mossy oak. Like it was the most like explicit with mossy oak. Um, and then it was also it, it being the buy our camel support conservation. Yes. And it's this weird kind of conservation is it, you know, I gather where it's to them. Conservation is, isn't it just purely on your land, on the land that you own, put out some food plots and monitor your deer with a game cam? That's a lot of, a lot of what I saw when I was looking. Um, they make a lot of connections with like agriculture and farming. Like this idea, I th- if I'm remembering right, I think it was Mossy Oak of like, the slogan of like farming for wildlife came up. Um, or there, there's another one. It's like ranching for wildlife. That's a term that has a lot of baggage associated with it. Yeah. So that you know what that is? Not as I'm not as familiar with that so, one. So yeah, and I, I'm not very good at explaining it either. But yeah. when you, when you hear a sp- that talked about in the West. It's mainly what it is, is it's land that's being managed for big game. And it's usually in areas where there's land owner sponsored tags. So the the person that owns that land just gets is allotted some number of tags that they can then sell Mm. to hunters. Either that, or there'll be limitless tags, all kinds of tags. Anybody can go buy a tag. But the only way you're going to be able to use that tag for hunting is if you pay huge dollars to go on a place. Okay, yeah, I've I've heard of that. That's called, that's ranching ranching for wildlife. A lot of the big names in hunting, that's how they hunt. Like Joe Rogan likes to make like he's a hunter, but that's all he does, which is, and Cam Haynes is another one. There's tons of them. That's hunting to them is, you know, going places that paying huge dollars, but they probably don't have to pay anything because they're just free advertising for those ranches, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah, farming, maybe farming for wildlife is a different thing to these to the industry where it's has something to do with that you're is it just like a, a management approach that provides that's where a lot of the i see a lot of um stuff related to food plots yeah and how to create food plots for like specific wildlife populations yeah. on your property yeah so <laughs> that kind of cracks me up that that's what they that's what they consider conservation to be. I mean, most of that is directed towards boosting whitetail deer numbers. And if there's one critter we don't have to be concerned about, it's whitetail deer. <laughs> you know? 
So, yeah, uh, they they're pretty they're pretty adaptable and resilient. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if, if like the major conservation challenges in the U.S. It's not increasing populations. It's not food plots. It's yeah. urban sprawl in the Intermountain West. Um, it's things like, uh, well, overfishing on both on the coasts. Um, things like that. Uh, there's a lot of threatened endangered species that need very specific habitat they have very specific habitat requirements they require a lot of effort to fill but it's not putting out putting out sand foin and alfalfa for, for white tail deer it gets they really heavily market it as a form of wildlife conservation sure. you know and to the, have you to be fair, that stuff does have benefits for other critters too, like songbirds, like food plots, you know, songbirds, turkeys, rough grouse, you name it, they all benefit from it. I mean, if you're, if you're some person that lives in the Midwest, some hunter in the Midwest, and you manage your 40 acres or whatever so that there's timber of different ages you got some like low early successional stuff a lot of brush and you got some mature more mature old growth sorts of stuff you got some food plots clearly you're making the world a better place by doing it that do it by doing that i mean you're 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 benefiting wildlife. There's no doubt about it. It's just that that's not where the major conservation challenges lie in the United States of America. Yeah, we have a lot. I mean, and that's the other thing too. I think with like Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's, there's this claim that they're leading North America's largest conservation movement. Oh, come on. Oh, it's huge. It's huge on their website oh um, when you look at their conservation page. And I think it really kind of ties into this, like, it's, you know, it's all about doing things bigger, like killing the trophy animals, like increasing the amount of funding for conservation, which then like, you know, increases these companies profit profits. So it's like, that's where this neoliberal conservation kind of all comes like, this is how it all starts to come together of you, you got to buy more products to get more funding for wildlife conservation because hunting populations are declining. So wildlife conservation, no, that's bullshit. Is. That's bullshit too. I mean, the, the number of hunters doesn't even matter. The, the, the number of hunters does not matter in any way. What matters is the number of hunters per huntable acre. Um, like, I can't think of any way in which the raw number of hunters is relevant to anything we care about. You know what I mean? I, yeah. It's but like, it, what matters is how many hunters there are per huntable acre. 
if you have more hunters, but you don't have anywhere for them to go. I think that's part of like some of the biggest flaws in the logic with like this North American model of wildlife conservation. Yeah. You don't, you don't have much love in your heart for the North American model. I really don't. <laughs> well, there's some aspects of it that are, I, I, I think it's like, I think it's, you know, I think some aspects of it are very admirable. Well, there's there's some definite egalitarian language in there. That'd be but it doesn't. This is where with. this is where my issue is. It doesn't play out in in, in that egalitarian way. It's very well. I, I would argue that there's nothing wrong with the model. The problem is we don't follow the model. Yeah. Or we I mean, don't 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 just agree with me to agree with me if you don't if you disagree i'd like to hear about it but that's my take on it is people like talk about that and and act like they're in favor of it but there are a lot of the people that are most vociferously in favor of it are people that are in the hunting industry um or people that that buy up land and lock other people out and make hunting less egalitarian. I think with, for me, with the North American model, it's just this idea of funding conservation is, I think it's hard to ever make that egalitarian because if you if you're someone who can't afford you know there's this you have to buy all these products to hunt and it's buying these products that well, how that is that a part of the north american model well if you can't because the pitman rob i mean through the pitman robertson yeah, but those, those, those two things aren't connected in any way are they yeah i think they are oh i've never heard the north american model of wildlife management i think it came about didn't it come about long before? The way that I understand the North the American model is that it kind of encompasses like all of these different aspects. The only thing I know about the North American model of wildlife management is the seven tenants. Right. Um, and so when you have, you know, those seven tenants, one of which is like, you know, that while, you know, the, there's the, the idea that wildlife are held in public trust doctrine and therefore everyone. And then you also have this, even if they're not, I mean, they, they, inter, they interact with one another, the Pittman Robertson act in the North American model. And so if you're, if you're saying like you have to buy products to fund conservation, you're always going to exclude people who can't afford to buy those products and suggest, you know, by extension that they aren't wildlife conservationists because they can't participate in this like mechanism of funding conservation. In their, that's in, that's in, one without, of without any, if you just read them in a vacuum, and this is like when I say I like the North American model of wildlife management, all I'm saying is that all I'm saying is that I like the what the the foundational elements of it. Wildlife is a public 
resource. Elimination of markets for gain. Mm-hmm. Allocation of wildlife by law. Wildlife should only be killed for a legitimate purpose. Wildlife is considered an international international resource. Science is the proper tool for discharge of wildlife policy. Democracy and hunting. I can't think of seven things I agree with more. I think it's it's the fact that it doesn't actually play out that way. Yeah, well, okay. So it's like well, it's all you, it's like, if I were you, I would I would say, okay, I don't want to tell you what to say, but I would, I think if I was to characterize your view and say you agree with the North American model of wildlife management, but you don't think it's being put into practice. And that's what I think. Yeah, I think that's similar. I think there are some parts that I still, I just, I. Yeah, which of the seven don't you like? Because they, so they tug at my heartstrings, all of them. No, I think I think all seven are good. It's just that some of the critiques like that I cite in the paper of of how it 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 really it stresses the I mean a lot of people's critiques are that it overemphasizes, you know, the contra like yeah, so I guess it does it does tie into the fact that it doesn't it doesn't play out the way that it's supposed to. And I think there are also a lot of other approaches to conservation that we might not even like consider that we could, I think, I just think we can think about, I mean, it's 2022 and I think we have a, a lot more knowledge than we did when some of these ideas were first being presented in like the early 1900s. And I think we can, you know, imagine a lot of different ways to think about conservation. The, 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 the edicts and ideas in like the history of thought that are most appealing to me are the ones that are the least contingent. The ones that depend least on when or where or or the particulars of of the situation. I like timeless shit that's in like stuff that that remains true outside of regardless of the context. You know what I mean? I think I'm the opposite. I'm all about the particulars. <laughs> oh, but I think it's really difficult like, to, I mean, to create something that can be broadly They just make that are there's just some ideas that um the ideas that are more most guiding to me that guide me most and they're more most compelling to me are ones that there's no it depends attached to them like don't lie you know that one seems like it doesn't depend on the circumstances just don't do it don't use people as an instrument you know by having them believe something that isn't true um 
the with the with the seven tenths, there's two of them that I think the hunting industry violate, and that's elimination of markets for game, and wildlife should only be killed for a legitimate purpose. I think that. I think they also violate wildlife as public trust resources. Oh, and I think they violate the democracy of hunting. How do you think we deviate from democracy of hunting? I think that at least the way this North American model is playing out is it doesn't give everyone an equal say in how wildlife are conserved. Like no, some people okay, they, I'm having trouble not. with the way you're saying that because it's not like the, mo- the North American model of wildlife management is making it so that there's not democracy in hunting. The North American model said there should be, says there should be democracy in hunting. If we're not provide, if it's not democratic, that's just saying that our country is going against the North American model, right? It's not a problem with the model. It's that the model isn't being instituted. So that's, no, no, I, I see what you're saying now. And I think, I think, um, where it's not democratic. I don't think it's democratic at all. And I think it's becoming less so all the time. Yeah. Because more and more the, the good hunting habitat, good hunting lands are being locked up by the wealthy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so the common man can't get on there. So it's not that it's just it's it's we're becoming like Europe and Africa, where it's a rich man's game, even though the wildlife are ostensibly owned by all of us. So I want to ask you about one other thing. Okay. It comes across that you're concerned about hunting being a predominantly white male pursuit. So, and it almost seems in, in with certain passages, like you're blaming the hunting industry for that, whether it's witting or unwittingly, you think that they're culpable for that in some way. So I guess the question is what, what are the downsides to society to wildlife um, and to conservation of hunting being the predominantly white male thing. Um, so I think that I don't know that the hunting industry is solely to blame for this because I think. Yeah, it's but do you think they're partially the to blame? Oh, I think they're. I think they're probably more than partially to blame, and okay, and certainly like hold upholding this. Yeah. So how how are they how are they to blame? I mean, when you look on their websites, and just yeah, the, the, anybody can go hunt. You don't have to get permission from the hunt. You don't have to get com- permission from Bass Pro Shop if you're um a a woman of color to go buy a hunting license. No, but you might face a lot of discrimination or potentially racism when you go to the store. Um, so, and I've really? I've heard a lot of Man, people. That would, that would be some cold blooded shit to like not sell products or give advice to, 
give bad advice to people that aren't white male? You think that happens? Not like I. I mean, I've just I've I've heard a lot of, or I've seen a lot of 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 people talk about this on social media of experiences like going to a like a firearm store, for example, or a shooting range, and just feeling very unwelcome. Okay, I can buy that. I can buy that. Yeah. And so I think where the hunting industry kind of like reinforces this is just the fact that on their websites you know none of these these shows that they're producing you know and that i saw anyway show anyone who's not a, a white male um so that's just a lack of diverse representation like in their media outlets yeah so it, your point stands but i'm aware of well there's some hunting shows that Right. The host is a woman. And I'm, and um, And so I think this I'm was a, partly. I'm aware of guests appearing on hunting shows that are not white and not male. Right. But it's still like in a much lower. Yeah. They're, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Format. And I think that for me, this kind of ties into that idea of democracy of you know that there isn't really equal representation when it comes to wildlife conservation yeah this could quickly de de devolve into a conversation that has to do with all with, with that with equal representation more broadly because i'm not aware of any domain in where there's equal representation. All right, well, we should probably wrap it up and let you go night-night. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, thank, thank you so much for having me. This is something I don't really get to talk about often, especially not with hunters. Um, so it was really... It was really nice just to have this opportunity to kind of share a little bit about some yeah, of the things yeah. I did. Great. It was a good opportunity for both of us.